Hey, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a one that looks something like this somewhere around you on the floor. It's page 848 in this Bible. If you have your own Bible with you, um, I can't really help you with what page it's on. It's somewhere near the back. Um, and if you have your phone, scroll to James two. Uh, today's passage is, uh, we're trying to give you the passages ahead of time to read. And today's is James 1, 26 through two twenty six, which is a big swath of scripture. It's way too much to cover today, but we're three weeks into the six week series on the book of James. And we're just now getting to chapter two. So um, we're going to have to skip ahead a little bit. I want to focus today on James 2, 14 through 26. I wanted to give you a breather. I know you guys have been standing for a while, but what we've been doing during this series is to kind of stand together and read the word of God uh, together. So if you're able, would you stand and uh, let's read these passages together. We're gonna read 14 through 19 together. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So today, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look into the tension that is kind of created between our faith and our deeds. In other words, what we believe and what we do. And what we're going to see is that your faith only works when you work it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. We just pray that you would open our hearts right now, open our ears to hear whatever you have for us and help us to accept this teaching, however hard it may be. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. I apologize, I'm losing my voice um, from preaching one service already, but also from singing so loud. And so I just wanna apologize to the people around me who had to uh, suffer through that. Hey, uh, you know, you don't have to have talent to have a desire to perform. That's all I got to say, right? And so in the late 1980s, McDonald's was really struggling. They were uh, suffering. Their sales were down for the first time, really, that anybody could remember. And other upstart restaurant chains, places like Subway, were really starting to gain ground on them. And so McDonald's did what a lot of businesses do when they start to struggle in sales. They asked their customers, What do you want from us? They actually uh, had a survey and their customers could fill out this survey of what do you want? And overwhelmingly, people said what they want from McDonald's was what? Does anybody know? More fries, everybody says more fries. No, they want healthier food. People said, we want healthier food. Overwhelmingly, the response was, give us something less fattening. And so McDonald's put their vast resources to work and they came up with this, the McLean Deluxe. Who remembers the McLean Deluxe? Raise your hand if you remember it. Just a few of us. 
There's a reason for that. This McLean Deluxe, uh, you may remember this sandwich if you're old enough. It came out in 1991 to great fanfare, a huge marketing budget. There were TV commercials, magazine ads, um, promoting the McLean Deluxe, 91% fat-free, uh, good-tasting burger without all the fat. Uh, McDonald's was, uh, did some market research, and they asked these same kind of customers that said they want this uh, healthier, healthier food, um, you know, how, how often they would shop there if they had a burger that was healthier and how many they would buy. And they got concerned about the results because they were afraid that there wasn't enough lean beef being produced in the United States to actually meet demand. They went to their suppliers, to the farmers and said, could we, if we sold this many burgers, could you make, could you create enough lean beef to meet this need? And the farmers kind of hemmed and hawed, but finally they said, yeah, I think we can do it. Well, they needn't have worried um, because in the end, McLean Deluxe was a flop. It stuck around for about five years um, until 1996. And in that five years, it made up a full 2% of McDonald's sales. In fact, today, the McLean Deluxe lives only on the internet, uh, usually in those lists of the top 10 corporate blunders, uh, corporate mistakes that people made. So my question is, what mistake did McDonald's make when they came out with the McLean Deluxe? They did everything by the book. They asked their customers, what do you want? They came out with a frankly, a good tasting burger that met all the criteria of their customers. But McDonald's mistake, I think, was that they overlooked a fundamental uh, truth of human behavior. And that is that what we know to be the right thing isn't always what we do, right? That there's a big difference between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing the right thing. And so uh, that's what James is going to challenge us on, on this passage today, the difference between in every area of our life, knowing the right thing to do and actually doing it. Now, just a reminder, the book of James is actually a letter. It's written to Christians in the first century. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is James, just picture this as James writing advice to you. And it's a very practical book, a very practical letter about if you're following Jesus, this is how you're supposed to live. Okay, so let's look at his words and we'll dive into what he has to say. James 2.14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? What good is it? Now, I have to admit that uh, James right away is creating some tension with this statement, right? He's creating tension between faith and deeds. And it's almost like, you know, there's not one or the other, but this, it's, it is, it's a tension. And, and as we go through this passage, what we're gonna see is that James doesn't really do anything to relieve the tension, in fact, he, he kind of tightens it up a little bit as we see this. So James asked this question, can such faith save them? Now, many people, especially in the church today, if you ask them this question, what good is it to have faith without deeds? They'd point to a verse. Uh, maybe they pick their favorite verse. Maybe they pick John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There it is right there in black and white. It's belief, it's our faith that saves you. And I think James would agree with that. I don't think in any way James is saying that our deeds can save us. But instead, what I think he's saying is that one result of our faith, one fruit from our faith should be good deeds or good works that flow out of us as a result of our faith. That deeds aren't the way to be saved, but rather an indicator that we have saving faith. In other words, James says, your faith should inform your life. Now, I think this passage, by the way, is very relevant for us because uh, just like uh, at that time when it was difficult to be a Christian, I think in the U.S. today, it's actually pretty easy to be a Christian as long as you don't live like one, right? Like 
Believing in God and even Jesus is usually okay. It's okay to celebrate Christian holidays and go to church and quote scripture once in a while. It's okay to pray for people and offer to pray for people. It's okay to put scripture up on your walls and it's okay to eat at restaurants that only serve Christian chicken. That's all cool. As long as your life doesn't look that different from anyone else around you. But, but, but as long as your beliefs don't interfere with anyone else's right to live absolutely however they want. As long as you don't talk about sin or judgment or hell, you're probably okay. In fact, study after study shows that this is true. Several years ago now, there's a guy named Ken Woodward. Ken was the religion, and, uh, religion correspondent for Newsweek magazine. Anybody remember Newsweek magazine? Anybody remember magazines? <laughs> there's a paper thing that you could actually read. Um, but Ken Woodward wrote an article several years ago um, talking about this dichotomy, this, this disconnect between what we believe and how we lived. And here's what he says. Stick with me. It's a little long. He said, sociologists have long puzzled over surveys that show the United States is the most religious nation in the advanced industrial West. When asked, more than 90% of Americans profess a belief in God. More than half say they pray at least once a day. And in any given week, more than 40% claim to have attended worship services. All this is in a society that is overtly, even aggressively, secular. And then he says this, but now three provocative new surveys based on fresh sociological data challenge the traditional image of the United States as a secular nation with the soul of a church. These studies demonstrate that, listen to this, while religion pervades the American landscape, only a minority take it seriously. In other words, Woodward says, we say we have faith, right? We know how to answer the right questions, but when it comes to our deeds, our faith isn't always reflected in those. Our faith isn't reflected in how we live, how we spend our money, how we marry, how we relate to one another, and how we prioritize. And so James asked this question, what good is a faith like that? What good is it? And then he gives this example, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He's talking about thoughts and prayers, right? You know how not, not accusing not pointing a finger, we all do this. I just wanna say all of us do this, right? Uh, we all, when somebody uh, has a tragedy or something happened in their life, we all all say, hey, I'm praying for you. But how many of us actually pray? And if we do pray, don't most of us like pray that one time and then go on about our business, go on with our lives? I mean, how often do we actually take the time to pray for someone continuously, even if they're our friend, even if they're our family? How often do we take the time to go and sit with them and just care for them and be with them and listen to them and, and sit by their bedside and take care of their needs? Or if we see someone in need, somebody that we clearly have the resources to help, how often do we not do that? Because it's not our priority. We have our own priorities, right? Man, this verse struck me really hard uh, this summer when I was in Ethiopia. And I was traveling with World Vision, many of you know. I got to see lots of places with such great need. 
and I'd just be walking down the, the dirt streets of a place called Shashogo in Ethiopia or, or, or hiding behind the locked gates of the World Vision compound while little kids were trying to crawl under the gate and climb over the fence just to see in, just to see the Americans that were in there. And, and I, here I was, an American with a, with a big savings account. And, not big, but you know, by, <laughs> by their standards, it was big and uh, an emergency fund. And all of a sudden, some words came back to me that I heard a pastor say one time at a conference. He said this. He said, just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not an emergency. And my heart was wrecked by seeing these kids and these people who had so little and yet are so loved by God. That's why I'm a huge believer in organizations like World Vision and Compassion International and and other groups that are fighting poverty on the ground that are doing good deeds, good works in the name of Jesus. James says, one way our faith is shown is by how we give and how we love and how we serve other people. And he stands strong on that. He says, faith without works is dead. It's dead. And and I was writing uh, this message this week and I was like looking for a way to back away from that. I'm thinking, well, how am I gonna soften the blow for people? How am I gonna let people off the hook? How am I gonna let me off the hook? And in fact, if I were James, I'd really wanna find a way around this. I wanna take the sting out of this verse, but that's probably why the Lord didn't have me write this book. Because if I were James, the people pleaser in me would really work hard to make sure that that didn't hurt. But it does, it hurts. And James doesn't back away from it. In fact, he doubles down. Look at verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And so now we have to be very careful again how we approach this. I I don't believe that James is saying that your deeds are the saving part of your faith. I think instead what James is saying is that our faith is kind of like a pendulum, okay? And on one side, we've got the people who only do good works, Right? And this is, I think, reflected in our society. If you look at media or culture, you see this a lot. Um, if you ask the average person on the street, if they, if they believe in a place called heaven, um, say, are you going to heaven? And most people will say yes. And then if you ask them why, they'll say something like, well, because I'm a good person. I do good things. I care about people. I love people well. I give money away. Uh, I gave up my job for ministry, whatever it is. They'll have this belief that something they do or something that they can do or something that they gave can help them earn their way into heaven. But James isn't saying that. He says, if you're gonna do good deeds, they absolutely must be a result of your faith. They've gotta flow out of what you believe. That if our faith, if our belief in Christ isn't the motivating factor for all of our good deeds, they are wasted, at least on an eternal level. But then on the other side of the pendulum, over here, you've got what you might call the intellectual Christians, the the big thinkers. They're they're the people who are always looking for a new book, a new study, a new curriculum, a a new take on a passage in Scripture. They're the ones who love it when I use a Greek word in my message. Sorry, I don't have anything for you today, intellectual guys. Um, They're the ones who love that deep thinking. Um, and, and, And none of those things are bad. It's good to have more knowledge about God. We, we could all use more knowledge about God. Good things come when we memorize scripture and when we dive deeply into a passage. But James wants to tell him that if your faith is only here, if it's only head knowledge, if it's not shown by your deeds, he says, it's dead. It can't save you. Your faith doesn't work unless you work it. 
So let's put this on a more relatable level, talking about the McLean Deluxe, the, the diet example. Do you know what replaced the McLean Deluxe on McDonald's menu? And it was a much bigger seller, by the way. It was called the Mega Mac. It was basically a Big Mac, I'm not making this up, with two extra patties and an extra slice of cheese slid in the middle, stuffed into that same bun. It was a much bigger seller than the, than the McLean Deluxe, and it was the uh, highest calorie, fattiest burger that McDonald's ever came out with up till that time. And it was a big seller. Why? Because there's a difference, isn't there, between knowing what to do and actually doing the right thing. Remember that time you had that big test? Maybe it was in high school. Maybe it was in college. Maybe in grad school. And you know you needed to study. But then you knew also that the office marathon was on. You know what I'm talking about? There's a difference, isn't there, between knowing what you need to do and actually doing the right thing. There's always that guy at the gym that seems to know how to do every exercise and he's gonna come up to you while you're doing your bench press and tell you what you're doing wrong, but he's not particularly fit himself. Isn't there a difference between knowing what to do and actually doing the right thing? I have to tell you, uh, last year I was trying to set up uh, my fastest marathon time ever and I did all kinds of research on the web. I, I searched Google, I looked for every marathon training plan I could. I looked into what methodologies they were using and why they chose to do these runs on these days and, and why they were running that fast in this condition and I, I picked the one that was best for me and I downloaded it and you know what I did? I did about 70% of the workouts and so I ended up a half an hour short of my goal. Is it because I didn't have the knowledge of what I should do? Is it because I didn't know the right thing to do? No, it's because I didn't do the right thing. And there's a big difference between knowing what you should do and actually doing it. And when it comes to your faith, what you do, how you act, how you treat people, how you love people is important. It matters. So while we all know that deeds can't save you, equally important is the reason behind how you behave. We see that in James's words here. We can also see it in a similar passage from the Apostle Paul. And so I'm gonna point you over to Ephesians 2. You can find it on the side screen here. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles. But Paul says this, and I want you to see the, um, the similarity in these two passages. Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, what I want you to see here, what Paul is saying, and I think this is what James is saying too, is that this is like a recipe, okay? It's a recipe for living faith. And in this recipe, there are only three ingredients. Now, I want you to imagine that you're making dinner or making dessert, and there's a recipe, and it only calls for three ingredients. What's going to happen if you leave one of those ingredients out? It's not going to work very well, right? Anybody watch uh, The Great British Baking Show? You know that show on Netflix? And so if you watch The Great British Baking Show, you know there's always this technical challenge, right, where they give them, um, if you don't watch this, um, watch it today. You'll be hooked. You'll watch the entire series probably. Um, and so they give them this technical challenge where they tell them, okay, you've got to make a chocolate souffle. And they give them about half a recipe. And if you can't figure out the rest of it, it doesn't come out right. Even if you get the right ingredients and they don't go in the right order, it doesn't always work right, right? So when you're making cookies, you, you uh, put in the butter and you cream the butter together with the sugar and then you add the flour. And if you don't do it that way, the cookies don't come out right. And so in this recipe for living faith, it's the same way. There are three ingredients, all three of the ingredients are important and the order in which they come are really important. And so let's just uh, look at this recipe. I call it three ingredients for living faith. It's in your notes. If you wanna follow along, you can take notes. Um, he says the first, Paul says the first ingredient is God's grace. 
It's grace. It is by grace you have been saved. It's a free gift for everyone. It has to start there. His grace is available to anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is or what you ever believed. That his grace is available for everyone. It's there. And that's the first ingredient. It's the most important ingredient. It's the one that has to come first. Second is how we receive that grace. And it's through belief. It's through faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? And so, um, and it's not just any belief. It's not like belief in yourself. Like I believe I'm enough. That's belief, but it's not belief in the right thing. It's not even belief in a God who maybe is the same God for every religion. It's a very specific belief, a very specific faith in Jesus, uh, the son of God. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's God's grace through faith. We have grace, the free gift from God, and we have to choose to believe. Straightforward so far, right? But James doesn't stop there. He says that belief isn't enough. This may be the hardest verse in the entire book of James. Verse 219, he says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, he says, if your idea of a saving faith, of a living faith is based solely around belief, then you have something in common with the demons. They believe, in fact, they know Jesus is the son of God, but in the end, we know they will not be saved. I love how author Sam Albury says it. He says, affirming certain right things about God is clearly not enough. Hell is full of good theology. And the apostle Paul agrees. If you just read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you might be lulled into thinking that that's the whole recipe for living faith. But look, he directly mirrors what James is saying in Ephesians 2, 10. The very next verse, he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The third ingredient is there, it's good works. It's things like giving and serving and sharing the gospel and loving people well and having hard conversations. Good works, our deeds are important. What we do carries weight. How we treat people, how we love people, how generous we are. Those things are all important components to our faith. Now, I've said that. I need you to repeat this after me. Deeds can't save me. Okay, let's do that a little better. Deeds can't save me. No, they can't. Deeds can't save you. And, but James would say that they are an essential part of our faith, that they are they're, they're the, not the saving part of our faith, but they are the fruit of a saving faith or of a living faith. And James says, faith without deeds is dead. It's dead. Like it's not coming back. And so here's what I wanna encourage you to do this morning. Take a look at your faith. Is it alive or is it dead? If you've made Jesus a part of your life, has he made a difference? Like, have you changed at all? Have you seen any fruit as a result? Because I have to tell you, if you truly believe in Jesus, you can't truly believe in the Jesus of the Bible without becoming more generous, without becoming more compassionate, without having a heart for the less fortunate. Has God helped you see people the way he sees people? Do you have a living faith? 
I want to look at how James closes this section. He's going to give us two examples from the Old Testament. Actually, he's going to give his readers two examples from the Old Testament of people who had living faith. And one of them is kind of expected and normal. And the other one is a bit of a surprise. And so look at James 2.20. He says, you foolish person. Okay, he's talking to the people who have faith without deeds, right? You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture that was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And then (laughs) James really takes this left turn. And he says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, everybody reading this passage would have expected James to use Abraham as the example of faith. We see it all throughout scripture that Abraham, the father of our faith, is the one that people point back to that says, look, God told him to go and he went. God told him to stay, and he stayed. God told him to go sacrifice his son Isaac up on the mountain. He carried Isaac up the mountain, carried the wood, took all the stuff for the sacrifice, and it wasn't until God stepped in at the last second that Abraham stopped. He did exactly what God said. He is an example of living faith. But then James uses this other story of Rahab, the prostitute. Now, if you don't know this story, it's in the book of, uh, of Exodus, and we see the, the Israelites are going into this land called Canaan. It's the land that God promised them. Actually, God promised to Abraham. And they're, they go into the promised land, these 12 spies they, from, from Israel. They go into the promised land to scope it out, and they're being chased and they take refuge at Rahab's house and she hides them and she helps them escape. And as a result, the Lord, when um, Israel came in and invaded Canaan, the Lord saved Rahab and her family because her faith was expressed through her deeds. That her faith, even though it was new, it was brand new. She wasn't a Jewish person, uh, at least as far as we know before that time, she was living in this foreign city but her faith became real when she expressed it through deeds. You see that if you walk out in your yard, um, it's winter now, practically it's fall, but in the spring, you'll walk out in your yard and there'll be a bunch of sticks sticking out of your ground that used to be trees. And most of them, by God's grace, will come back as trees, but every once in a while, there'll be one that won't come back. It'll just be a dead branch and you'll be able to break it off. When the wind comes, it'll just break, it'll fall. That's what not living faith is like. Like living faith can withstand the storms. It can withstand the snow. It can withstand when things happen. But uh, living faith can do that. But non-living faith will break off and rot when the storms come. James says that faith not expressed through our deeds is dead. So what's yours? Is it alive or is it dead? I want to encourage you to just find some ways. We're we're, uh, heading into the holiday season now. I've I put my Christmas tree up yesterday, so it's time. Um, got Thanksgiving. Thank you very much, my one fan. Um, it's time to start thinking. Thanksgiving is next is a week from uh, Thursday. 
Christmas is coming. New Year's is coming. There's a lot of people in need. There's a lot of people that hate the holidays because it's a lonely time. It's a sad time. Think about ways that you can serve people in the season that's coming up. You know, what can you do? We're, we're gonna offer you an opportunity. Uh, we're, we weren't gonna start promoting this till next week, but I just wanna tell you about it this week. Um, we're starting, once again, our Love Your Neighbor Drive next week. Uh, next week, we'll be giving out lists of things that you can go buy as you're out Christmas shopping for your family. You can buy some things for our friends without homes in Indianapolis. Uh, we're partnering, once again, with Food for Souls. They're a ministry that reaches out to the homeless uh, men and women in Indianapolis and, and helps to meet their needs and give them hope by offering uh, hope in Christ, but also meeting their physical needs. And so we're gonna have a list next week that you can pick up. And as you're out shopping for your family, maybe you pick up one or two things and bring them back and put them under the Christmas tree. But, but maybe that's not really your thing. Maybe there's something else that the Lord has called you to do. Maybe, there's, maybe you have a heart for international missions or something else. Well, last year we partnered with a couple different ministries and it didn't work quite like we thought. So here's what we're gonna do. This year, I, I'm, we're not ready to announce Christmas service times yet. We probably will next week. But around Christmas Eve, that weekend, Christmas Eve is on a Monday. I know we'll have Sunday services. We'll also have Monday services. But that whole weekend, every service, as we collect the offering and you know the host team comes forward and you applaud and you give money, every dime that you give that weekend is going to go to our outreach partners. We're, we're not gonna keep any of it for Genesis. It's all going right back out the doors. And thanks. Here's why. Um, I talked to you a few weeks ago about uh, what we give and we give, our church gives a 10th of everything that we receive to our outreach partners. We go right back out the doors to meet the needs and we wanna get to 20%. But our goal for this year was we'd love to get to 11% this year. Eventually we wanna get to 20, but we wanna get to 11. And this is our, our objective in this. Every dime that we collect on Christmas Eve will go to our outreach partners and our hope, our goal is to, that 11% of our total income for this year will go to our outreach partners this year. And so I'll just a preview of that. We're gonna do that. So start praying about what the Lord might want you to give on Christmas Eve. Um, maybe you need to sign up for a ministry team. Uh, maybe you need to host a Bible study in your neighborhood. Maybe you need to host a connection group. I, I watch House Hunters and there's all these young couples that want place to entertain and yet nobody can host a connection group. I don't get it. Find a family to adopt. Maybe your group or maybe your family um, has more than you need this Christmas. But there's another family that you know that doesn't have enough and you can uh, find a family to adopt. Or what about, how about if, if your house, if your home became a place of refuge this holiday season? And so families that don't have a place to go on Thanksgiving or don't have a place to go on Christmas could come and hang out with your family and be a part of your celebration of the holidays. Now, you may think, I can't do much. I don't have much time. I don't have much money. I, the little bit I can do can't make a dent in the problems of the world. Well, that may be true, but they can make a dent in the problems of one person. And I've got a, a pastor I know says it this way, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And we wanna be a church that does that. We wanna do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And, and in, in your life, maybe the Lord's given you a dream. Maybe that dream is, is to go on a mission trip or, or to start a Bible study in your neighborhood or, or to plan a church for heaven's sake. If Lord has given you that dream, it will not fail. Do you know that Jesus says that he has been given all authority on heaven and earth? And if Jesus has all authority and he tells you to go do something, it's gonna be a success. So if the Lord's giving you a dream, don't be afraid, go do it. Now, as I was thinking about this week, why this is important for us to know, my mind flashed back to a passage in the book of Acts. 
to the very first church. And I thought about what this may have looked like for them. I mean, if you just imagine that you didn't have any context for what church should look like and your only guide was what the scripture said about church and you went to the book of Acts and, and chapter two and you saw the very first church and what would we be doing? If, that, if that's our objective, what, what does the church do? And here's what it says, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like good works to me, right? No, no one was hungry. Nobody's worried about paying the rent. Nobody worried about how to take care of their kids or their sick loved ones because the church took care of its own. Now look at what happened as a result of that. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and look at this part, and enjoying the favor of all the people. The church enjoyed the favor of all the people. Now, what that means is that people outside the church liked people in the church. That the church people were popular with the non-church people. People saw what was happening inside the church and the non-Christians said, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I sure like how they behave. I'd sure like to have them as a friend. I'd sure like to have them as a neighbor. I'd sure like one of them to marry my daughter or marry my son. Let me ask you something. Do you think the church, the universal church, not Genesis, but the universal church, do you think the church today enjoys the favor of all the people? Probably not. I mean, in general, just, just look at the way the church is portrayed in media. What, how's the Christian look on TV? Right, they're the judgmental one, the hypocritical one, the, the selfish one. Sometimes they're the villain. Like the church today in general doesn't really enjoy the favor of all the people. If you don't believe me, just go to any website and look at any article written about Christians in the last couple of years and then scroll down to the comments section. See what people say about Christians and about the church. But in the first church, the church in Jerusalem that we see in Acts 2, the church was popular with people. People liked the Christians. Now, why is that important that people like what's happening in the church? because look at what happened as a result. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People found their way back to God because of what was happening inside the church. That's how the recipe works. God gives us his grace. We believe as a result, we do good works and people notice and people find their way back to God as a result. That's why good deeds are so important. Because look, I gotta be honest, if you feed somebody, they're gonna get hungry again. You know, if you give somebody clothing or shelter, it's eventually gonna wear out. But if they find their way back to God, they have a gift for all of eternity. It can't be taken away. And that's what happened in the first church in Jerusalem and it can happen today. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> do you know who one of the key leaders in that first church in Jerusalem was? It was James. James, the brother of Jesus, was there and he saw all this happen firsthand. And I think seeing that, seeing that recipe at work, I believed that's what caused him to write these words. Faith by itself, not accompanied by actions, is dead. 
So Genesis Church, let's be the kind of church that has a living faith. Let's be the kind of church that is so overwhelmed by God's grace that our faith overflows into our actions. Let us do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Let's pray together. God, it's a challenging passage. It's a challenge uh, that James has given us that as a result of our faith, um, we should act out of that. And so help us to respond to you right now. Help us to respond with clear hearts and open minds. Help us to see uh, your love for us in the words that you've spoken over us through the words of this song. We pray these things in Jesus' name.